This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, it's Friday and you know what that means. It's another episode of Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Hartini Zainuddin. She's a child's rights activist. She's the co-founder of Yayasan Chowkid and also the vice president of Voice of the Children, which is an NGO that does advocacy work, law and policy reforms and even training on children's issues. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hartini. How are you doing? Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Um, no, I'm good. I'm well. I hope you are too. Yes, I'm doing well. I'm really excited to talk to you about your journey. So let's get right into it. Um, perhaps you can start with Yayasan Chowkit itself. Um, tell me about Yayasan Chowkit, Tini. What, what does the organization do? So Yayasan Chowkit is an organization that works uh, with marginalized children, primarily in and around Chowkit, but also we do a lot of work on uh, national issues affecting and impacting ch- child children as well, child rights. Um, so basically we do things. One is, that, like I said, upholding the rights of children in need. And the other one is providing um, services to the, to the same or maybe slightly different children in need as well. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've, we started with four main pillars on child protection, food, shelter, education and health. And we've sort of expanded to include a lot more services right. as well. And yeah. you are the one of the co-founders of Yayasan Chow. Can mm-hmm. you remember what exactly sparked the idea, the, the sort of light bulb moment exactly? Do you remember? Well, yes. It was the first day I actually volunteered um, through a different organization in Chow Kit, working at um, one of the daycare, government daycare centers, um, which was... Um, um, actually hired, um, which actually hired uh, a couple uh, who were the co-founders with me. Um, and um, just going into to this 600 square foot space um, that had no food for 40 children um, who were there at that time, and then realizing that there were so many gaps, um, you know, with the system. And because I had worked with children in America, um, the issues are the same, uh, you know, no food, parents um, who are um, single parents or non-existent who work different hours, leaving kids by themselves, uh, children who are in conflict with the law. There was a lot of things. But I think what was scary for me was that, you know, children actually there with no birth certificates um, and having to come by themselves and leave by themselves. So that was a bit. And there were little kids, Mm. six, seven years old. So for me, that first day was impactful because I actually got to see close up what was going on. Um, um, and not realizing there were such serious issues. This organization that you're talking about, are, are you talking about Nur Salam? Um, because yep. So Nur Salam is the name of the program we gave before it became Yayasan Chokit. We okay. were actually a program under Yayasan Salam Malaysia, which was a volunteer NGO that I I, were, I I actually volunteered for, who sent me to Chokit. So yeah. And how how did that evolve from Nur Salam to Yayasan Chokit? So Nur Salam is actually, it's actually called Rumah Nur Salam. Um, So I wanted to think of a sanctuary, a place for children to be. So Rumah, house, and Nur, which is um, light and Salam, which is peace. So it's the house of peace and light or light and peace, which is sanctuary. Um, So that's how we got the name. And then then, um, I had to get a board. And um, the chairman, who is also the chairman of Yes and Salam, um, decided that, and you know, reflecting back, he was right. Um, taking back the the name Chowkit, 
Uh um, to claim it as something where children shouldn't be ashamed of where they're from and to claim that name back and make it something known, uh, whether it was nationally or internationally. So we and, and to claim that name back and to be proud of it. Um, so that's how Yayasan Chokit came to be. Well, that's very interesting. So, yeah, yeah. What were some of the challenges you faced at the beginning? Did you face any challenges trying that to set up? Hmm. Um, I think the first one was obviously fighting with um, with us. Right. <laughs> the political party, because they have the HQ on Jalan Rajalau, right? And we were like the next road over. Um, um, you know, there was this whole accusation going around that that we were... Uh, that I was trying to um, shirk or encourage parents to shirk their responsibilities and parents. Where did they get that idea from? I don't know. (laughs) By taking care of their children and not allowing parents to take care or shirk their responsibilities of taking care of their own children. And I'm like, uh, whether they can't or they won't is beside the point. Someone has to take care of the children. And that was never the intention. Um, so that was the first public fight, actually, it was in Al Jazeera, where we were like having this whole argument, getting two perspectives from a representative from PAS who said that was what I was doing, uh, that I was allowing families and parents and adults to uh, dabble in Um And <laughs> I mean, you know, Wait, it was just so helping many, children many, was and, labeled. Apparently, you know, by taking care of the children, I would allow these parents to go out and behave and be involved in illicit. That's madness. It was just just so completely crazy, right? And all I was thinking was like, I just want to keep the kids in a safe place where they can find sanctuary, have food, you know, get the health checkups and dental help, do homework and go home. But of course, if the parents weren't going to come pick them up then I wasn't going to let the children go home by themselves. Right. So that was really the intention. So that was that was one of the challenges. And then, of course, the, the whole idea of, um, you know, um, demystifying and, and sort of countering um, accusations that uh, many of the children were children of migrants, uh, that the parents were no good, the children were no good, uh, that they were, they were seen as these, you know, invisible children that it was just really horrible labels Hmm. um so that was another part and then of course you know just realizing that um that the child protection policies in place did not include non-malaysian children one that the the policies in place didn't take care of every every single child um and that there were gaps in systems doing proper child protection even when you know you have sexual abuse against children or children called in as witnesses or in conflict with the law or runaways or there was just so much going on and 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 I wanted to 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 sort of highlight the issues in China like the fact that there were pockets of children who were falling through the cracks that was mm. really it right yeah. you're also the vice president of voice of the children Tini. tell me yeah. about your work there so voice of the children is another ngo that my friends and I set up actually after we set up Nur Salam um, to look at advocacy and training um, in terms of looking at how we advocate on policy changes affecting children. And because we had so many cases coming from Nur Salam at that point in time, it was easy to collect data, collate data and point to actual cases where the system had failed children and then advocate for their rights. So it was really an extension of what was going on and sort of highlighting the different child right issues that were affecting children around Malaysia. 
Um, and that many were, you know, global issues, whether, you know, it's child trafficking on the issue on statelessness, um, access to health, access to education. So that was really what it was set up. And then, of course, we went into other child rights issues that may not have been there, um, you know, up that obvious that first year. But yeah, right. that was how it was. Now, Tini, you know, listening to you, you you are very passionate about, uh, you know, child's rights issues. Yes. Um, this has been your life's work. Um, yeah. What Why is this cause so important to you? I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, one is because I had personally a great childhood growing up. There was lots of storyboards, little TVs, you know, I had parents who encouraged us to speak at the dinner table, you know, I had, you know, I had all these great fun stuff pretending to be scientists and doctors and clowns and what have you <laughs> and having this wonderful thing, right? And then having seen children in in America and New York and then seeing kids in childcare who didn't even have playgrounds. Do you know that there are no playgrounds in, in childcare? There's, There's no, no playgrounds, playgrounds in childcare no. at all. There's oh. no playgrounds in many of these areas. You look at Slayang, you look at, you know, you look at Chowke, you look at different, there are no playgrounds. Kids play in between shop, shop houses, right? Um, we had a kid fall backwards playing badminton and died, just hitting his head in the drain. There are no playgrounds. There's, there's no space for children. It, it, you know, and when you, you don't have the right to play, for whatever reasons, there's no there's no playgrounds, there's no equipment, there's no safe space for you. You know, you 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 fear. You're always in fear of someone just coming up and just snatching you off the streets. The whole horror hmm. of knowing that children were not safe on the streets playing, and that there was no safe space for them. Um, the fact that because you're poor and marginalised, you have less, um, and that you cannot even take things like growing up in a in a safe neighbourhood. Um, is something that was very disconcerting in one. But then, of course, that you have no access to health services or education because you have no birth certificate. And the reason you don't have a birth certificate is a, is a number of reasons. Um, you know, as simple as, you know, parents were not educated enough to know that, you know, you can get a waiver on, on fines if you don't do your birth certificate because there's a 50 ringgit fine for every year that you don't do a birth certificate. I had a mother with six kids. She had 3,000 something, not realizing that she could actually write in and get that waiver. Oh, dear. You know, so, so six children didn't have birth certificate for years. Um, so there were so many things that were common sense and should have happened in our universal rights that just didn't happen. And so you have kids growing up with nothing when it was their right. Um, so that was the one I think that offended me the most and just horrified me. And that, you know, we could do something and, and lobby. Yeah. Now, you lived in the United States for around 20 years, right? Yeah. yeah. Did you go there for your studies? Why, why did you decide yeah. to stay there? And why, why for 20 years? Well, um, very simple. Um, I always grew up wanting to teach actually and work with children right um and i always had it in my head that i was going to 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 live abroad and do all these things and then when i had the opportunity to go abroad to further my studies um and um and and you know and see the world sort of that was my first time out of the country um i just realized that that i <laughs> two things one i got to see the world and see a lot of things that happened in New York and was learning and trying out different things um, and getting a lot of opportunities to volunteer. Number two, I didn't think there were poor children in Malaysia. 
Really? That was the honest truth. So I didn't think I, I needed to come home, right? I just like, well, I want to work with poor kids. You know, I want to work in war-torn zones and do all these things. And I was like, oh, but there's no opportunity for me in Malaysia. Don't don't bother, right? So so I decided to stay. Um, but then, of course, I, I came home by accident, actually. Um, my dad wasn't well. September 11th happened. It was just 2001. And then sort of after September 11th, I just decided or maybe I should stay. And then I started volunteering in childcare and saw the need and I said, okay, then, and it just clicked. So that, so that, so that was my light in my sort of light bulb moment. Um, saying, you know what, this is where it is and it's my home and we have this same issues and we're not poor and we're not at war. So why is this happening? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting thing you brought up, um, this idea that you didn't think um, there were poor people in Malaysia, but there were poor, but you thought there were poor people in the United States. Um, how, yeah. what, what formed that sort of um, perspective? Well, because, I was, because I was volunteering in soup kitchens. So I worked in, in soup kitchens and basements of churches. Right. Um, I, was a, I was a candy striper at St. Vincent's Hospital, which is shut down, which is a public hospital for the poor, working with AIDS patients. Um, you know, I was, I was a New York care volunteer working in inner city school area. I went to Columbia, right, which is, you know, on 120th Street uh, between Broadway and Amsterdam, you know, five blocks up is Harlem, right? So so you see all these things, you know, you have East Harlem, you have West Harlem, and, and you see what's going on. And it opened up a whole different world to me that I never knew existed in Malaysia because I grew up, you know, in a very middle class, sheltered home. Mm. You go to school, you know, bus come home, <laughs> you don't see, right? Everybody's like everybody. We don't right. see this. And then all of a sudden you see this and you're like, oh, we have the same issues. And they're like, why am I going abroad? Just stay here and do something after being abroad. But it was definitely a lot of what was going on um, in America and seeing issues and working with kids there and then coming back and then recognizing and identifying um, the same issues um, and knowing that I had some experience in doing something um, to make lives better. So I decided to try. What made you want to be a teacher? The honest truth. Yeah. I got into trouble when I was seven years old. <laughs> who humiliated me in front of the class. And I said, you know what, if I were a teacher, I could do better. And so that was really my, 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 that was the reason why I wanted to be a teacher. Interesting. Because I thought I could be a better teacher. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't treat kids like that. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Now, um, Tini, I'm very curious um, about your family and childhood. Um, you, mm. you brought it up a little bit Um but, you know, about how, you know, you had a lot of these things. You had toys, yeah. you had, um, you know, yeah. you had access to education and, yeah. and all of these things. But when you were growing up, um, did your parents or other family members um, discuss, um, you know, human rights issues and, and social justice regularly? I'm very curious because you went to the U.S., you know, one of the reasons is because you wanted to help uh, uh, yeah. the underprivileged um, children there yeah. and so on and so forth. So yeah. I'm wondering how did you, you know, get oh. get sort of this this idea, this this wanting to help um, people? So, so I, I'm, I'm biracial, right? My hmm. father is Malay, my mother is Chinese. My, my, my father was born in Johor. Um, but we lived in 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 Pekan, Pahang. My mother is also from Johor. She's from born in Moa, raised in Moa. I'm so, a Johorian. Uh, just thought yeah, I had I'm to so put it I'm so nice. I'm also born in Johor. <laughs> nice. Johorian as well, zero one, right? <laughs> um, so so my mother came from this middle class Chinese family. My father was from a very very poor family. Um, Fourteen brothers and sisters. He was the oldest brother, number five. 
Um, he used to tell us stories. I mean, it's your, your cliche stories, but, you know, your traditional poor family. My grandfather was in Ustaz, um, um, and my grandmother used to, and my my aunts um, used to make nasi lemak and kueh, and my father right. would sell them uh, before before he went to school. And of course, he did the proverbial, um, you know, walk six miles, you know, with no shoes, and after this thing, um, study by kerosene. And um, as soon as he graduated, um, decided to work so that he could support the other younger brothers and sisters. So you had this. He cleaned toilets in the British barracks, right? So he had a really tough childhood. My mother, on the other hand, came from this middle-class family where there was a piano in the house, which is a big deal, yeah? Yeah. Um, so they had piano lessons and they did, you know, these different things. And, and, and you know, the way they met, they fell in love and they, they left, I think, um, and, you know, um, um, the story of how my, my mother, um, my, my grandmother, and my mother's father um, didn't approve of the marriage, right, because my mother was Chinese marrying a Malay man. Um, and so she's, he forbade her um, to marry him or warned, or, or warned her not to marry him. And she still did. And she literally walked out of the house with a bag and got married. Without wow. so I think there was defiance there. <laughs> We're talking about the sixties, right? Yeah, 1960s. So, so I think I learned about about standing up for your rights from my mother, doing whatever it was that you, despite the fact that you know she was going against parents. So that was the first one. The idea of helping the poor obviously was for my father, um, growing up in such hard conditions, and you know, and he, he was young enough. Um, um, to be around during World War II where they all had to flee into the jungle and stuff. So I, I know that part, I think, about wanting to work the poor. And, and then my father always said to us um, um, growing up um, that you should always be, you always can judge a person by the way they treat people in service, how you treat taxi drivers, how you treat waiters, how you treat people who do... So, I mean, so these were all the different things. So he, they, my, you know, they, my parents always brought us up to be polite stuff. My mother loves children. So I definitely got that from her. Um, and so, and I'm, I was also one of those kids who was, who was very, very hyper and very, very naughty. I was always in trouble. And like I said, because I was always in trouble and teachers never knew what to do with me. I would always end up in detention or, you know, get punished or whatever. And I said, you know what, I can do a better job. <laughs> so that was the defiance again. Um, so, so that's the kind of childhood yeah. I had um, growing up. And, and we had, you know, land to run. And right. and we didn't have TV so much. I mean, we had TVs, but, you know, we read a lot of books. And so I was always on an adventure and, you know, doing all sorts of things and getting everyone in trouble as well. So it was normal. It was a normal time. You write your bikes, you fall down, you scrape, you need to get up. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we had that. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, and I was always something. I was a scientist. I was a doctor. I was whatever it was, right? And I used to get troubled. Not that I didn't get into trouble. I always did. But there was a childhood, something solid. Right. What do a lot of kids kids nowadays, no, they don't have that. You know, you can't go out and ride my bicycle in the street unless you come from a safe neighborhood. And safe neighborhoods are getting smaller and smaller. Um, you know, if you're in Chalkit, there's no way you can ride your bikes around town unless, you know, you're a Matt Rumpet Jr. waiting to be a Pat Rumpet Jr. You know, it, it's just the environment doesn't allow children to be children. And so you these this this house of sanctuary and this Umano Salam and Chowkit, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to create these bubbles where children can be children. And that was really the the intention. And it was definitely very personal for me. Yeah. Um 
setting this up because of, because of because of my childhood. Yeah, and you mentioned that you know you you came back from the U- U.S. as an accident because your dad wasn't feeling well, and yeah. also nine eleven happened around yeah. the same time. Um, yeah. When did your um, dad pass away, and how did his passing impact oh, you? Oh my God, you didn't. Oh, okay. So I, um, so my father was sick, and he passed away. Um, he had a heart attack, and he died in October two thousand and five. Right. Um, I wrote the proposal for Nur Salam, October 2005. I literally wow. wrote the proposal for Chowkit while my father was on life support. Um, because my sister was living in, in, in New York and she couldn't come back on time. And we were trying to keep, you know, trying to keep him on life support till she did. But the doctor said that he wouldn't make it. And so I was in the hospital for six hours, just, you know, trying. But my mother was crying. It was just a lot of drama. And... And I didn't know what to do with myself while waiting, right? And and you know, and what to do with this grief, um, because we knew we knew that you know we were going to take my father home and he was going to die home. Um, and I didn't know what to do. So while while I was waiting, I, I wrote the proposal right. for how I wanted um, Nur Salam to look, and then sent the proposal over to the chairman of Salam, who became the chairman of Yes and Chokit. And he, he called me and he said, you are crazy. And I said, if I don't do this, then I'm crazier. And I need to do something for my grief. So Chuck, it's very, YCK is very, very personal. On the show with me today is Dr. Hartini Zainuddin, child's rights activist. After the break, I'll be asking her about her children and why she decided to adopt. We'll be back with more on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashwan Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Hartini Zainuddin, child's rights activist. She's been doing this for decades now. So, Tini, you're a mother yourself. Um, you mm-hmm. have adopted um, four children. Why did you decide yeah. to go into adoption? Well, it was simple. Um, as you got more entrenched in the work that we were doing in Chalkit, one of the biggest issues at the time, and we're talking about 2005, 2006, 2007, baby dumping was at an all-time high. Literally, people were handing me children oh, and dear. not running off and leaving me with kids. Um, even before we had a centre, I already had six kids in my house, and I had a one-bedroom apartment. Um and so, you know, advocating for foster care, which was is not existent still, which is something I'm working on now with with my friends, mm-hmm. um, and and knowing that adoption was such a taboo thing to talk about, you don't talk about adoption openly. I felt that you had to take the bull by the horns, and the only way to advocate for it effectively was to to adopt myself. That was literally while I'm changing my son's diapers, I said. You know, I couldn't get him adopted for three months. I said, well, you know, if I'm going to be an advocate, I better do it myself. So I did. That's so, yeah. brilliant. That's so absolutely that brilliant. Yeah. So, so you know, everybody's like, well, how do you choose your children? I mean, not really. It was the circumstances. And I said, okay, well, no one's doing it. I'm doing it. Yeah. And that's it. And then you fall in love with the children after. So I'm always doing everything opposite. <laughs> when, it, when it comes to one of your kids, um, um, Zara, there is a pretty sc- Carry story that uh, oh, that I've read, uh, you know, an it. excerpt about. Yeah. Um, do you mind sharing that? Yeah, I can, but you have to wait one second. Okay. She's in the room. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Never mind. Close your ears. Okay. So, um, so, so basically, I got a call, 
and and like I said, this time when we're talking about 2008, um, and we had actually in 2007 had 14 cases of baby selling already, right? So, and and in I'm just giving you a bit of background. Mm-hmm. So in 2007, um, Tanaganita and some of the other NGOs working on on anti-trafficking were lobbying for an anti-trafficking bill. There was no anti-trafficking bill, right? In 2007. So I would literally go to the, to Dangwangi and police stations and stuff and saying, oh, my God, this father was trying to sell his children. And the police would turn around and tell me, where does it say you can't sell your children? Wow. That was really, that is why, that's why VOC started, Voice of the Children started, because I had no legal background. I wasn't very familiar with the Child Act. And the police and people would tell me, where does it say you can't sell your children? And then, you know, the lawyers would tell me penal code, whatever it is. And I'm like, I don't have penal code. I've got Child Act, right? And so people telling me, and it was just, and you, I was losing kids. It's mind-blowing. Just systems. I, There was no anti-trafficking law. The anti-trafficking law was introduced in um, no, November, December 2007 and implemented in March 2008. We had our first anti-trafficking case in Sabah in, two, in March of 2008, and literally the traffickers walked. The girls, who two of them were underage, which we had to hide them. And, you know, so I know some of these police people for a long time. Then, of course, you know, then you have all these, you know, kids with no documents, you know, being sold. You get them and they're like, where's the police report? Nobody knew what to do. Nobody knew what how to work the system right so i get this phone call in april of um april and may of 2008 saying that there was this baby you know to come and pick this baby up that was up for adoption and i'm like nothing right because i'm doing it like every week literally my mother right before that two weekends in a row was helping me bathe babies right <laughs> and and you know and we were trying to figure out like you know who was going to adopt the children right. no systems don't you know and they say oh yeah you have this law we don't we don't nothing's implemented so i go so i so i call this couple up and and i said okay well you know not knowing right um, saying, okay, yeah, let, let's meet in Bangsa. Really? True story. Let's meet in Bangsa. You know, I'll go pick up the baby. Not thinking, right? I get in the car and then it hits me. I said, you do realize I don't buy babies, right? And I knew, I just instinctively knew. I was like, we do not buy babies. We don't. I, we're not involved in that. I'm actually trying to stop that. They're like, no, no, no. You know, there's no, you know, there's no, when there's no buying and selling, I said, because, and I'm in the car, yeah. So I don't even know where they would stop me. Oh my no idea, right? God. I was already in the car. So anyway, so we get we get to Klang. I don't even know where I am. We go into this house. There's a child in another room and this little baby on the couch. And her back's to me. And I thought it was a newborn and she's not. She's about two months, two and a half months old. Right. And I don't speak Chinese here. My mother's Chinese. I don't speak a word. So they're talking in Chinese. I'm sitting there like... Can I pick the baby up? They're like, yes. And she turns around, this little thing. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I knew. Because I saw the milk formula cans. There was a baby in another room. I, I just knew. So then, of course, and I'm like, oh, you know, we don't sell babies. But, you know, for our services, we want this amount of money. And I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. Now what do I do? Because I'm definitely not leaving without the child. And my saving grace happened to be that it was a Saturday. Okay. And um, and so the, there was no bank open, right? <laughs> and there's no, and of course I lied and said, you know, my limit on my ATM is a certain amount. I'm NGO. There is no way I have ten thousand ringgit with me. Right. right? So I said, oh well, um, 
I can't, I, you know, you, I'm going to have to come back on Monday, but I'm not leaving without the child. So why don't we do this? This is really, I said, why don't you send me home so you know where I live? I cannot move out in two days. Let me have the child. Uh, we'll do a checkout. We'll do everything and stuff. And then you can come back on Monday. <laughs> That's literally what oh, I did. Wow. And then what happened when Monday came along? I actually got the money and I paid. Oh. So, but then, of course, I had already called the police, yep. called, called, called everybody already. And they were like, oh, please hand the child over. And I was like, no. I was like, no, because I know what's going to happen. And you, this child's going to disappear in the system and I'm never going to see it. And I'm like, nope. So that's when I decided, you know, after asking around and stuff and, and saying that what's going to happen, I was like, okay, the only way I can protect her is to adopt her. And 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 at that time, of course, I, I, I come home to my mom's place with her. It's the third baby in Arroyo for that <laughs> weekend. It's the third weekend. Right. And she looks at this one and she says, oh, this one we're keeping, right? And I was like, yeah. This one we're keeping, I said, because oh. I need to protect her. So that's what happened. Hmm. That and, and you know what's really sad is that in 2017, um, Zara was yet to be given a citizenship, right? But by the Got government, citizenship in 2019. So she managed okay. to get it. Now, so yeah. why why did it take so long? Because I think for a lot of people, um, you know, who we know that these issues are happening, but to hear it happening to you. Yeah. Um, you know, Doctor Hartini Zainuddin. Yeah, with a big mouth, right? Yeah, it, it's it's genuinely it's in, in you know it, it was the hardest process, and I think that was part of it. And you know that my mother, when I was younger, you know, when when I took the children, she used to say, you know, are you a mother first and an activist? And I'm like, I'm an activist first, mummy. The motherhood came secondary. Of course, you embrace it, but yep. it was never my intention, right? Um, I, I wanted to go through the process because I knew what had happened already in 2007 with the other 14 cases. I knew, and this was, and and I knew that as soon as I filed the police report and I did the welfare thing, that there was going to be an issue. Um, I wanted to see what it was like. And me, even with all the support, had so many issues. I couldn't get her birth certificate for the first five years. The, the, the system was so messed up at that time. And we're talking about like, you know, 2012, 2013, um, I actually went to court to do her adoption first without a birth certificate. Welfare, JKM, wouldn't even issue me a birth certificate because they said, unless the child comes from a welfare, government welfare home, and has gone through the welfare registration thing, they could not help me process a birth certificate because to for the application for a birth certificate, there's a section under 13A under your application that says, um, you, where are your witnesses to show where she was born? I'm like, dude, she was already two and a half months, and you know that. Right. The doctor says, okay, yeah. So where am I going to find these witnesses, right? So they, so, so they couldn't. I couldn't even file the application for a better. Um, and they wouldn't, and they wouldn't help me. Um, so I literally had to um, go to the home minister and ask him to personally intervene. And so we got birth certificates for 21 children. 21 children. That's great. And Zara was one of them. To get the birth set, the citizenship took another six years. It was 11 years from beginning to end. 11 that, years. That's just crazy. Why, why is there so much red tape and bureaucracy and, you know, uh, what's going on? You're, you're just, why is why are people trying to prevent you from helping someone? Because the priority isn't children, hmm. number one. The assumption is that if the child doesn't have a birth certificate, then they're not Malaysian. Uh, which is rubbish. Um, the the onus on on proving whether they're citizens or not falls on the child, not on the government. When the government says they have a right to choose who gets citizenship, 
and but but the proof of burden the burden of proof on deciding whether you are liar or not liar to be a citizen is on the child you have to prove your malaysian you have to prove which is so Walked. Yeah, I, it, I, I cannot. It, it, yeah, yeah, I can't even process that. So, what yeah. what needs to change in in Malaysia, so the issue of you know stateless children can be resolved? First, let's just assume one thing: that if you're a child, you're entitled to special provision and protection as a child, regardless of whether you're Malaysian or not. Right? You can't look at a child, and I used to get this all the time to see if they're Muslim or not. Muslim is a religion. You can't look at a child and say if they're Malaysian or not. Malaysian is a, is something you give. It's not yeah. something you're born with, right? So let's just assume and start with the fact that, that children need special protection, that all children deserve all these basic rights. And we're talking basic rights, yeah, to survive, not even to thrive, yeah? Access to school, access to health, um, getting a birth certificate, getting your BCG shots, getting... These are just to survive, yeah? Just to make it, not to, to do well. That's what they don't want to give. And, and when you don't give that, then the child loses out because you cannot have a well-functioning child growing up when you don't have all these basic rights, right? Access to health, access to education, which is guaranteed, right? You should, it should be something that's given. It's not. Um, so when you don't prioritize and say it's necessary for children to have all these things to, to thrive and be the best version of themselves, then you're going to lose all these children. Right. That's number one. Number two, the idea that that these policies and these children are going to pose some kind of national threat. I'm like, seriously, who on earth, who on earth gives up their child, hides behind a coconut tree? And I say this all the time, waits for the child to get citizenship through adoption or whatever. And then they suddenly jump out from behind the car and say, well, no, actually, and they're my parents and we are Bersubahat and in you know, in in, in, in in some kind of conspiracy right. with parents so that this child could get citizenship because then the parents get citizenship. I used to hear this all the time, right? But that is how ridiculous it is. Um, so it makes no sense. That's number one. And number two, the it, it's some parroting ch- chant, mantra you have, um, which I think a lot of policymakers make to say, oh, these children are not Malaysian. They brought in from other countries. Their parents are non-Malaysian. I'm like, we have an issue with baby dumping. We have an issue with teen pregnancies. Where do you think they all come from? You think they're all non-Malaysians? No, they're Malaysians. They're Malaysians. They're afraid mothers, young mothers, dump their children because they know what's going to happen. Culturally, religiously, there, there is impact. Are you telling me all the children are non-Malaysian? That's number one. Number two, if you insist that foundlings, babies who are dumped, babies who are found and stuff, you know... Uh, are, are helpless and that they are babies and they need help. Why can't you give them citizenship? Because Zara is a foundling, yeah? You know, because we don't forget the fact that, you know, baby selling is not considered uh, a trafficking offense. She's a fault. She was a foundling. Why can't you give her citizenship? Exactly. Oh, cannot. Cannot. Because, you know, we don't know if you're, you are in cahoots with, with the biological parents and you're going to get citizenship for her. I said, but you decide who gets citizenship, right? So you will decide or not. Exactly. What can you give the child? It's, it's just... There is no logical explanation. And it goes against the federal constitution is another thing. But hey. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's it's really frustrating. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense. And it's yeah. just incredibly frustrating. You've been doing, um, you know, you've been in this field fighting for child's rights, um, helping children for, for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um 
Have you noticed, at, at the very least, um, positive? Is our country moving in the right direction? I guess that is the question. I love MD18 and the fact that 18-year-olds can know vote. Yeah. Um, and that, that you have young young advocates being 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 told of their rights and and that um, the message of rights and child rights and violations against children has has sort of spread and we have more young advocates because I have been doing this work for too long. Um, and I'm always looking <laughs> to hand over the baton. Yep. Um, so I, I love the fact and I'm comforted by the fact that there are more activists and good ones, better ones than me, um, who are much more articulate, who can actually make change. The issue is, decades later, we're still talking about the same issues. Right. And just, I was reading, I was reading this as coming back just now um, on child marriage, right? And 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 the religious, the minister and the PM's department saying we're not going to raise the age of marriage of women from sixteen to eighteen. I'm like, I have visited this issue. Five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I'm like, seriously, seriously, especially now after the pandemic when so many have lost their jobs and children have dropped out of school and children are forced to work in factories and stuff and forgo their, their childhood. Are you saying it's not more important? It's imperative that we revisit in child marriage. And if you're a policymaker and, and you know, elected and, and by the people, shouldn't you care about 30% of your population who are, who are all young people and, you know, your children and stuff are growing up? This is what you want to tell them. Sorry, we're not raising the age of, um, of, of consent from 16 to 18. Seriously? It's just, it. yeah. And, and so with, with that in mind, right, what... What keeps you going? Because, you know, activists, I'm always facing an uphill battle. And, and you know, from what I hear from, from you know, from, it's, it's, it's a fact that, you know, most of your journey is going to be defeats with a little bit of victory sprinkled in, um, you know, important victories. But it's always people are, you know, clamping down, people are pushing back, you will have resistance from the state for even the most ridiculous things. Like you said, when you started, you were trying to help people and this whole Maxia thing and all of these things, yeah, yeah, yeah. and all which doesn't make sense. So what keeps yeah. you going? What keeps you, what has kept you going all these years in the face of so many defeats, many ridiculous things being pushed on you and, and things like that? The number one is the fact that I'm not alone, that the, the voices are louder and they're more organized. I am the most disorganized person <laughs> ever. So it's nice to have people who are more organized and louder than I am. So that, that's one. Number two, we do win cases. Mm. Um, you know, cases whether, you know, you look at one category of, of childhood statelessness um, where, you know, in, in this case, um, Malaysian mothers having given birth to children abroad being entitled to citizenship, right, which is like a total gender discrimination kind of thing, the fact that it went to court and they won. Okay, never mind the government's appealing, which is just another, like, mind-blowing what? Um, but the fact is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that would never have happened, yeah? And now we've, we are making progress. One step at a time, one category at a time. So one child at a time, one kid at a time, one case at a time. Um, the fact that we have WhatsApp chat groups on child marriages um, and we're outraged together. And the fact that women's and, and, and human rights groups are coming together with lawyers and academics, which didn't happen 10 years ago. We all were working now in silos, coming together because we have a common cause and the common cause is protecting children. Uh, I think that's very, that's very encouraging and that keeps me going. And the fact that, you know, my daughter did get a citizenship. She's right. 13 going on 60. Um, and sassy, 
um, and and you know, and she, but she's got her basic rights met. So, so I'm reminded of the fact that we do make progress, um, you know, and 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 the fact that more people are stepping forward and not ashamed um, to say, look, you know, I adopted this child. This is what's happening. Um, you know, the fact that we're talking about foster care. The fact that we're talking about foster care 20 years later, but foster care, you know, that we, we, we're coming together and we're working on it to make sure that other children don't fall through the cracks. So it, progress comes in little bits and pieces, but I will take every bit and piece now because it's still a success than five years ago, 10 years ago. But yeah, it's still the same issues. Right. So you can't really get, get you know, so it's sort of a passive aggressive kind of thing, right? Um, but yeah, I'll take the little wins anytime yeah. because, because, you know, we've made, we, we have made some progress. Yeah, certainly. And, and you've made, you have done like some absolutely fantastic work and, and this has been, you know, an absolute pleasure, you know, speaking to you about your journey. It's been an yeah. honor. Um, just, you know, one last thing as before we wrap up this conversation, how can the public or anyone, you know, listening, um, if they'd like to support your work, um, support Yayasan Chowkit, um, is there, yeah. what can they do? First of all, please go to our website, but it will be revised. Uh, it's www.yck.org.my um, and see how you can contribute, donate to the different um, programs that we do, whether it's education, um, helping sick children, providing food to poor families, um, you know, um, so yeah, donate. Um, um, we, we we can't say volunteers now because of the pandemic and right. the but down the line, definitely there are different ways of volunteering. It doesn't have to be physical. Um, it could be your brains, expertise, um, time, uh, looking at ways in which we can strategize to sort of help change the approach to how we look at child protection. Um, the fact that I don't know how to do a website and, and I'm supposed to revise the website, <laughs> I don't know how to do that. Um, you know, there's so many things. The fact that, yes, of course, money is important. I'm not saying funding is not important. It is. But there are other ways to give, whether it's in kind, like I said, or your time or volunteering in different ways. They're all important. Or whether you want to be an advocate or an activist. I mean, activist, activism, I think, is a very strong word for, for advocacy, right? Do you believe that all children deserve to go to school? If you do, then you're an advocate. Mm -hmm. You only become an activist if you bang the table and yell the way I do, right? But that's a step. Advocates are good. Um, do you believe that, you know, all children must have access to health services if you're sick, that that being poor shouldn't stop you from being able to access and, and get the treatment that you deserve or get the medicine that you deserve? If you do, then you're an advocate. Um, you know, do you believe children, you know, should have a playground? If you do, then you're an advocate. So there's loads of ways in which we can create this big movement on to say, look, children matter and children are a priority. And that's all I want. Then I can go retire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you. This is this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Um, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dash, for inviting me here again, and thank you for giving me the platform. And happy holidays. And I'm saying Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. And I hope you know things get better soon. Merry Christmas to you too and happy holidays. I'm Tini. I've been speaking to child rights activist Dr. Hartini Zainuddin. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast version on the BFM app, bfm.my or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.